This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start out reading from the New York Jewish Week. First, from the editor's desk, can the continuity agenda be saved? Should it be? Young Jews find the emphasis on marrying Jewish, anti-feminist, elitist, parochial, heteronormic, and even a bit racist, by Andrew Silo Carroll. I have been in Jewish journalism long enough to have reported on the early days of the continuity agenda and to realize that what was important to one generation is anathema to another. If you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a refresher. After the National Jewish Population Survey of 1991 found that 52% of Jews were in interfaith marriages, the organized Jewish community went into shock concerned that non-Orthodox Judaism wouldn't survive and that American Jewry would lose its diversity and vitality, Jewish philanthropists doubled down on continuity, that is, getting young people to engage with Judaism and, yes, marry other Jews. The smart money went to day schools and summer camps. Birthright took off with the stated goal of connecting young Jews with Israel and the not-so-hidden agenda of connecting young Jews with each other. Survey after survey was commissioned to gauge Jewish involvement. New organizations sprang up, like the Jewish People Policy Planning Institute, which issued reports on a nightmare future of fewer and fewer Jews with less and less political power and influence. The continuity agenda had its critics, most families and advocates for the families actually involved in interfaith marriages. They argued that the emphasis on numbers was not only insulting but counterproductive. The stigmatizing of interfaith families was only driving them further away from Jewish life. In the last few years, with the original proponents of continuity either approaching retirement age or speeding past it, another cohort of dissenters has emerged. First and foremost are women scholars who say the continuity agenda's emphasis on fertility and natalism, promoting population growth, is misogynist, since it is women's bodies you are talking about. They have been joined by Jews of color, LGBTQ Jews, and a generation of young activists who find the emphasis on marrying Jewish, exclusionary, parochial, heteronormative, and even a bit racist. The debate coalesced around the sociologist Stephen M. Cohen after several women accused him of sexual harassment and assault. Cohen was the most prolific and influential of the men and women studying Jewish affiliation and demography, although hardly the first one, or the only one. He also made political uh, policy proposals pointing out the consequences of low birth rates and waning engagement. As three women scholars, Kate Rosenblatt, Lila Corwin Berman and Ronit Stahl argued in the foreword, these allegations reflect the troubling gender and sexual politics long embedded in communal discussions of Jewish continuity and survival, the focus of Cohen's work. American Jewish communal institutions have become reliant upon a form of knowledge about Jewish life that hinges upon sex and statistics specifically how many Jews are married to Jews and how many children they have. In short, sexist men come to sexist conclusions. That was 2018. 
Cohen is back in the news following reports that he had met privately with Jewish scholars who apparently still value his expertise despite the scandal. That angered the Women's Caucus of the Association of Jewish Studies. After they objected to the meeting, the president of AJS, Noam F. Pianco, stepped down and apologized for my lapse in judgment in participating in this meeting. No doubt this is a story about Me Too and cancel culture and wokeness and all the buzzwords that do more to cloud than illuminate our public and private discourse. But it's also about clashing visions of the Jewish future with the continuity agenda still very much at the center of the debate. The AJS Women's Caucus described the meeting with Cohen as rehashing old ideas about Jewish continuity in an effort to capture philanthropic funding. That refers to an allegation that establishment charities prefer to fund research that confirms their concerns about intermarriage and about waning attachment to synagogues in Israel. This week, Jonathan Sarna of Brandeis University, perhaps the preeminent American scholar of Jewish history, pushed back against the Women's Caucus and Pianco's resignation. Just because somebody committed a vile act he wrote on Facebook referring to Cohen that doesn't mean their scholarship should henceforth be maligned and removed from the scholarly canon. Nor is it self-evident to me that just because one individual committed to Jewish continuity seriously misbehaved, the whole enterprise and all those whose scholarship touches on the subject of Jewish continuity should be relegated to the ash heap of Jewish studies. Women scholars have also defended the continuity agenda from a feminist perspective while decrying Cohen's behavior. They include Sylvia Barack Fishman and Harriet Hartman, two professors who have been publishing since the 1980s, and Dr. Michelle Shane, a younger social policy analyst at the Orthodox Union Center for Communal Research. Implying that all researchers who discuss Jewish continuity are sustained by patriarchal and sexist ideologies erases much important published research and is dishonest and short-sighted, they wrote in a letter after a version of this essay appeared in my newsletter. Feminists, uh, female scholars and non-predatory male scholars have published extensive foundational work on Jewish continuity as we have def definitively documented. So the battle lines have been drawn. An earlier generation of influential Jewish scholars, clergy, and communal professionals regards continuity as an expression of vitality. They unapologetically ask what will make families and households value their culture and pass on its traditions as a family inheritance. They consider that a worthy enterprise for any ethnic group seeing its traditions slipping away, the Jews no less than the Native Americans, Aboriginal Australians or Palestinians. A younger generation insists the Jewish scholarship and organizational life has for too long been dominated by males and is consciously or unconsciously misogynistic. They too love Judaism, but not to the degree that it conflicts with deeply held values about diversity, women's agency, and the feminist standpoint. Others see continuity as a way to enforce obedience to obsolete or irrelevant ideas, including a familial attachment to Israel or to promote the values of an older, richer, and predominantly male donor class. So the question becomes, for me anyway, can continuity be saved? That is, can we aim to create a vital future for Judaism 
expressed in the lives of families and in the communities where they live in a way that doesn't look sexist or feel exclusionary. Can we talk about Jewish norms like child-rearing without treating women like data points while welcoming people who either can't or don't want to have children? Can we celebrate the Jewish people without implying that Jews by choice or Jews of color are not part of it? Some people are trying. Michal Bitton of the Shalom Hartman Institute wrote an important essay recently asking, could Jewish pronatalism and feminism be ethically reconciled? A sociologist and self-identified feminist, she noted that most American Jewish women want to have children. And for many, given the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people, the very personal act of pregnancy and childbirth has taken on intensive collective significance as a mitzvah for the sake of God and the Jewish people. She acknowledges and accepts the feminist critique of the, uh, of the continuity agenda, but she writes Jewish community can honor female agency and treasure Jewish continuity as part of a broader celebration of traditional Jewish values in a 21st century context. How? For one thing, Jewish communal organizations could promote paid family leave, child care, and other policies that lift the burden on parents, women especially. In addition, the broader discourse around Jewish continuity must be attuned to the family needs of single parents and new and diverse family structures. That's only part of Bitten's comprehensive and nuanced argument. I'm closer in age to the continuity crowd than its critics. For most of my adult life, it was a given that a goal of Jewish community was the generational transmission of its values. Having Jewish kids was considered a response to the devastating losses of the Holocaust. Later, the emphasis became parenting in a way that taught kids to value the Jewish past, love the Jewish present, and build the Jewish future for their and its own sake. This wasn't just men saying this or deluded Jewish women. For over 30 years, I have been part of egalitarian communities and an egalitarian marriage in which continuity has not been an icky natalist goal, but a life-affirming commitment to a Jewish future. As important, these are liberal Jewish communities worried that if their kids don't in turn create liberal egalitarian Jewish communities of their own, the Jewish, Jewish future will be an orthodox one that is seldom liberal and rarely egalitarian. But humans plan. God laughs. Our kids aren't growing up in ghettos, their world is more diverse than ours, and old assumptions are being overturned as they always are. But I can still hope that my kids and one day their kids find Judaism worth loving and cherishing and keeping alive. And now we'll go over to Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA. Israeli centrist Yair Lapid is given an opportunity to replace Benjamin Netanyahu by Ben Sales. Yair Lapid, an Israeli centrist, has officially been given the opportunity to remove Benjamin Netanyahu from power. On Wednesday, President Ruvain Rivlin gave Lapid the mandate to form the next coalition government in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. If Lapid succeeds, he will be out as prime minister for the first time, that is, Netanyahu will be out for the first time as prime minister, in 12 years. This marks the closest Netanyahu has come to losing his position since 2009. In order to form a coalition and end the gridlock that has frozen Israeli politics, Lapid may allow a right-wing politician, Naftali Bennett, to serve as prime minister before him. After two years of an ongoing political nightmare, Israeli society is wounded, Lapid wrote Wednesday on his Facebook page, following Rivlin's choice to give him the mandate. 
A unity government isn't a compromise, it is a goal. It is on us to form a government that reflects the fact that we do not hate one another. Lapid, leader of the centrist Yeshatid party, faces a foreboding challenge. Israel's political system has been in crisis since 2019 as the Knesset has been split between Netanyahu's right-wing supporters and his ideologically disparate opponents. The rift has persisted through four rounds of largely inconclusive elections. Twice before, a Netanyahu rival has been given a chance to replace him, but Netanyahu has managed to survive politically, in large part as the caretaker prime minister of a transitional government. Following the most recent elections in March, Netanyahu had another opportunity to form a government under his leadership but was unsuccessful. Now the mantle has passed through Lapid, his leading rival. To form a government, Lapid must assemble a coalition that spans the Israeli left and center, as well as right-wingers who are disaffected from Netanyahu. It will also likely have to rely on support from an Arab party, a rarity in Israeli politics. In order to secure agreement from the right-wingers, Lapid appears likely to allow Bennett, once a Netanyahu ally, to serve as prime minister for two years. If the coalition forms as expected, Bennett would be Israel's first religious Zionist prime minister. Lapid would then likely serve as prime minister for the term's two remaining years. In a speech Wednesday, Bennett endorsed the idea of a government with Lapid and other parties in order to avoid a fifth round of elections. There are two options, to rush into fifth and sixth and seventh elections that will simply destroy the state or to form a broad emergency government, however challenging, that will pull the wagon out of the mud, Bennett said. If the Lapid-Bennett alliance succeeds, by no means a certainty, it will be the culmination of a joint ascendance by the two men who both entered politics in 2012 as fresh-faced newcomers representing a younger generation of Israeli leadership. They are not ideologically aligned. Lapid, 57, a former news anchor, seeks to represent the amorphous Israeli center and has attempted to lessen the power of Haredi Orthodox Jews in government. Bennett, 49, who is modern Orthodox and a former Netanyahu aide, is an outspoken advocate of the West Bank, Israeli West Bank settlements who hopes to represent an unapologetic Israeli right. But the two have found common ground in the past. In 2013, they formed an informal alliance and together entered a coalition with Netanyahu. That government dissolved after two years. In the years since, they have been on opposing sides of the political spectrum, but may again ally in the hopes of extracting Israel from a political quagmire. And next from JTA, release of suspect in Bronx synagogue attacks reignites debate over bail form by Shira Hanau. When a suspect in a series of synagogue attacks in the Riverdale section of the Bronx was released by a judge without bail Sunday evening, it was a tough pill for some in the Jewish community to swallow. It also revived a debate among Jews over New York State's elimination of cash bail and most arrests, a measure hailed by progressive groups and challenged by law enforcement, Republicans, and some prominent Jewish politicians. Jordan Burnett, 29, was arrested early Saturday morning, last Saturday morning, and charged with the rock-throwing attacks that shattered windows and glass doors at four synagogues in the heavily Jewish neighborhood starting the week of April 24th. He is facing 42 hate crimes and other charges. At first, the judge set bail for Burnett at $20,000. 
Hours later, another judge, Tara Collins of the Bronx Criminal Court, overturned that decision and allowed Burnett a supervised release, saying a suspect with his charges cannot be held on bail under the current law. Evan Bernstein, CEO and National Director of Community Security Service, an organization that trains volunteer security squads for synagogues, said Burnett's release is a source of pain for Riverdale's Jews. There's some very unhappy people in Riverdale right now, Bernstein said. In the days after Burnett's release, several national organizations objected to the judge's decision and called for the bail reform bill to be amended to allow judges to set bail for perpetrators of hate crimes. Agudath Israel, a Haredi Orthodox advocacy organization, reiterated its support for an amendment to that effect. The amendment was proposed in January by Simcha Eichenstein, a state assemblyman who represents Brooklyn, but it failed to pass. In the face of rising anti-Semitic hate crimes, and as this egregious case makes all too clear, judges should be allowed to set bail for hate crimes, Aguda said in a statement. Those who target religious individuals and houses of worship should not walk freely while awaiting trial. Rabbi Abraham Cooper of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in California weighed in as well. Change the no-bail laws or New York may become the next Paris, he said in a statement. New York must not allow hate mongers to attack houses of worship with impunity. Twenty years ago, we witnessed similar scenarios occur in France where judges refused to hold those who vandalized synagogues accountable. That soon escalated to firebombings, violence, and even murder. The bail reform law was modified in April 2020 to expand the types of serious crimes, including sex trafficking and grand larceny, under which judges could still set bail as well for, as for certain persistent offenders. But local progressive leaders said the bail reform issue was not relevant to Burnett's case. In this specific case in Riverdale, the defendant, also a member of this community, is currently subject to supervised release, a court-ordered program to ensure the return to court to face charges, said Madeline Ritter, a leader of the Riverdale chapter of Ben the Ark, a progressive Jewish organization. The supervised release program also offers community-based support and resources. We are dismayed that some elected officials are responding to the vandalism of synagogues in Riverdale by calling for rollbacks to New York's bail reform law. Under supervised release, suspects must regularly meet with and maintain regular phone contact with a social worker while they await trial. Social workers also refer to the suspect, the suspect to community programs and provide regular progress reports to the court. If suspects do not comply with the reporting requirements or are rearrested, the judge can revoke the supervised release and return them to jail. Rabbi Linda Schreiner-Khan of Congregation Tehillah in Riverdale said the bail reform issue is not germane to this case. People are looking for a way to have agency, and there are times in life where you don't have that much agency, Schreiner-Khan said. The police caught him, he's going through the legal system, and our job is to be as calm as possible. The Jewish Community Relations Council of New York will meet in the next several weeks to determine if the group will advocate for a change to allow bail to be set in cases of hate crimes. Michael Miller, its executive vice president, said the group would put this through a process, but there are strongly held opinions on each side. It's also possible that we won't be able to achieve consensus, he said. 
The debate over bail reform first erupted in late 2019 and early 2020 when a series of anti-Semitic attacks on Orthodox Jews in New York City coincided with the passage of a bail reform package by the New York State Legislature. Most people arrested for a crime are not held in jail while they await trial, but those who could not afford jail could sit in jail for months or years until the trial took place. Advocates for the elimination of cash bail pointed uh, to the case of Khalif Browder, a teenager who killed himself after being jailed at the city's notorious Rikers Island for years while awaiting trial. But in the wake of the series of anti-Semitic attacks in New York City in late 2019 and early 2020, some Jewish leaders criticized the bail reform laws, claiming they were leading to an increase in crime. And after a woman named Tiffany Harris was arrested for assaulting a woman just days after her arrest for slapping three Orthodox Jewish women and subsequent release, the critics of bail reform grew louder. As objections to the reforms increased, more than 100 mostly progressive New York Jewish organizations, leaders, and rabbis signed a letter to Governor Andrew Cuomo supporting the bail reform law. Undoing the law, they wrote, will perpetuate the racial and economic inequality that bail reform counteract. And next, an opinion piece from JTA, What Will It Take For Me To Go Back To Synagogue? by Gary Rosenblatt, former editor and publisher of the New York Jewish Week, now retired, and an editor-at-large. When I was very young, what motivated me to go to shul on Shabbat morning was the fire station two houses away from the synagogue. My dad was the rabbi of the only congregation in Annapolis, Maryland, and shul attendance was a family affair. If I behaved during the services, my big brother would take me to the fire station afterwards, and sometimes the fireman let me sit at the wheel of the hook-and-ladder truck. That made my week. In recent days, I've been thinking a lot about my various experiences with shul attendance over the years. The sad truth is that uh, though I am fortunate enough to have received my second COVID vaccine more than a month ago, I haven't been back to shul, and I'm not sure why. But the weather is getting warmer, and I'm running out of excuses. It's ironic because these last few years I've really enjoyed shul. The services, the rabbis, the people, the singing. In my early years, not so much. As kids, learning to read Hebrew and becoming familiar with the prayers, the goal of services was to be the fastest. When I was about 10, I attended a family wedding in New York and stood in awe as I took in the sight of what seemed like hundreds of men in black hats and dark suits swaying fervently as they recited the afternoon mincha prayer. I zipped through the silent Amidah and was waiting for the service to continue. A few minutes went by and then a few more minutes until it seemed everyone had finished. I asked my brother what the holdup was, and he pointed to a very short, older man, eyes closed, still in fervent prayer. That's Rav Aaron Kotler, the head of one of the biggest yeshivas in the world, he told me. What's taking him so long, I asked. Can't he read Hebrew? As I got older, I learned about the importance of kavanah, or intention, putting one's heart and mind into the words we were saying as we prayed. But during my teenage years, prayer for me was associated more with obligation than choice. Starting when I was 11, I attended a yeshiva in Baltimore through high school and lived during the week at the home of my maternal grandparents. My grandfather, a European-born, Yiddish-speaking Talmudic scholar, had his own shul on the first floor of the large cottage house. I lived in the attic, and once I became a bar mitzvah, I was needed most mornings to help ensure a minion of ten, 
I'd know my presence was required because one of the shulgoers would ring a loud buzzer and hold it down for what seemed like minutes while I got up, less than enthusiastically and dressed in a hurry. I attended out of a sense of duty, and I admit that if an eleventh person showed up, I was tempted to go upstairs and back to bed. The association of annoying alarms and shul attendance continued when I got to Yeshiva University. I soon learned that loud minion bells were rung every weekday morning in the dorm to wake us up for services. Attendance was mandatory. For the first couple of weeks, we would wake up with a jolt from those bells, but somehow after that we didn't seem to hear them anymore. One teenage bit of mischief came about in Annapolis on Rosh Hashanah when I was about 15. The shul was packed, and my friend Michael, whose father was the cantor, and I chose an arbitrary spot in the service and stood up from our front row seats. There was a rustling and stirring behind us as gradually the entire congregation of several hundred rows following our lead. As soon as everybody was up, we sat down and they did the same. We did this a few times before my dad, seated facing us in his white robe on the bima, subtly signaled his displeasure. Over the years, as an adult with shul attendance no longer coercive, I have been blessed to have belonged to three synagogues in three states where we lived that were true houses of prayer. Each in its own way was special, but they all had active and devoted members committed to Torah and led by learned exemplary rabbis. And in each of the shuls, what I have enjoyed most in the service is when our joined voices blend in song, stirring a kind of transcendent feeling of collective prayer and community. Those peak moments make the shul-going experience something to cherish. Then came COVID. Houses of worship were closed, the virus was all around us, and we had no choice but to stay home. I missed the rhythm of walking to and from shul on Friday evening and Shabbat morning, feeling part of the spirit of Kehillah, the congregation, and often lingering after services to catch up with friends. But I became accustomed to staying home, and that had its own pleasant pattern. Sleeping later, praying at home, spending more time with my wife, and when the, the weather allowed, meeting up with friends six feet apart on a bench outside. I know I'm not alone in my ambivalence about going back to shul now. I've talked to friends about it, and they too seem a bit mystified about what keeps some of us home. We know that getting back would be good for the congregation, and probably for us, even though the prospect of, of COVID-limited attendance, singing and socializing is less than appealing. Are we just lazy or fearful of becoming sick? Or have we become dependent on the safety and security of keeping close to home? What would get me back to shul? No, it's not the prospect of visiting a nearby fire station after services. It's the chance to ignite a spark of faith and commitment and time to take the next step back on the long path toward normalcy. So there I was on Saturday back in the synagogue sitting alone at least six feet away from others and wearing a mask, felt isolating at first like praying alone in a room despite the others around me, but gradually the mood lifted and the familiar comfort of the prayers and the warm if muted greetings from fellow congregants made me feel home again. I could get used to this. And next from JTA, in Seattle, a Jewish school turned mosque is bringing Jews and Muslims together by Emily Alhadef. Nearly 100 years after Seattle's first Jewish school opened, 
An effort is underway to restore its crumbling building as a multi-faith center that can unite Jews and Muslims in the city. So far, the effort has netted more than $40,000 toward a new roof for the building that once housed Seattle Talmud Torah. But that's a drop in the bucket for what a growing collective of Seattleites are hoping to generate to turn the Cherry Street Collective into a reality. We've got lots of plans, Cherry Street Village project manager Kalud K. Tarapolsky said. The only thing holding us back is our imaginations. The building's story begins in 1928 when Seattle Talmud Torah's president, Fred Bergman, implored readers of the Jewish Transcript, then Seattle's Jewish newspaper, to invest in Jewish education. United, we shall build a new Talmud Torah dedicated to a God in Israel, Bergman wrote. Out of these portals will emerge healthy, upright, and loyal Jews proud of their heritage, Jews with a conscience. By 1929, money had been raised, $1,000 for a plot of land at Columbia and 25th in Seattle's Central District, and the esteemed Scottish-Jewish architect B. Marcus Prateka was on board to build an institution for Jewish learning. The Seattle Talmud Torah was born. Over time, the Jewish community's educational needs changed and the Talmud Torah disbanded in 1962. In 1980, the building was sold to the Islamic School of Seattle. The school disbanded in 2012, and the space was refashioned as the Cherry Street Mosque. Nearly 100 years later, the building that the Jewish community rallied for now sits in repair, uh, disrepair. Its roof leaks, rooms flood, and black mold plagues the interior. The mosque community could have walked away and probably could have sold the entire plot to an eager developer. Instead, the community decided to save it. But repairing the roof and just getting rid of the mold proved too big a project for the small group. So in November, a coalition called the Cherry Street Village launched a fundraiser to repair the building and repurpose the space as a multi-faith collective. It started as a group of friends, and now it's expanding, Tara Pulsi said. The group now includes the Salam Cultural Museum, Dunya Theater Productions, Kadima Reconstructionist Community, and Middle East Peace Camp. Jonathan Rosenblum has been invited, uh, has been involved with Kadima for 20 years and is Kadima's liaison to the village. Aware that the Jewish group is outgrowing its space, a church it rents in Madrona, less than a mile away, Rosenblum turned to Cherry Street leaders with whom Kadima already had a relationship. We realized there was this beautiful architecture, a cavernous hall. One could imagine what it would be like to be together in community, Rosenblum said. We committed to work together to get the roof repaired. There's been an outpouring of support, which has been amazing. Tara Pulsi has big dreams for Cherry Street Village. Artists and residents, social services and food trucks. She imagines an apartment for visiting artists, rooms to rent, a place for social services, a sculpture garden, a community garden, and religious events for both religions, B'nai Mitzvah, Ramadan nights, prayer services, and beyond. Jews and Muslims under one roof? It's happened before in a neighborhood in Paris, a school in London, a synagogue in New York City. In the context of what's happening in Seattle, the space sharing is especially easy to imagine. Both Kadima and Cherry Street Mosque are on the progressive end of their religious, respective religious traditions. Kadima prides itself on a social justice agenda and, and solidarity with the plight of Palestinians, 
which sometimes puts it outside the tent of the mainstream Jewish community. Cherry Street is unique among Muslims, too. The Islamic School of Seattle was started by five American women who wanted a progressive, Montessori-style Muslim school. We had children come from all different families, said Leila Kabani, a disciple of the school's founder, Anne El Muslimani. It was really an interfaith school. El Muslimani died in January, but she is revered as an educational pioneer. The mosque is a rarity in that it has a female imam. Around 99.99% of the other mosques wouldn't have a female on the board, Tara Polsi said. It's very, very progressive. We're very unique, and we're open to everyone, no matter the sexual orientation, skin color, etc. Kadima leaders say the mosque's unique orientation is crucial for their relationship. That aspect of the progressive stance is an important connector, Doug Brown of Kadima said. I think most of us share the perspective that we grow and understand our traditions better when we're in conversation with folks from other traditions. The issues we want to address require broad coalitions. Brown's wife, Sandy Silberstein, has been heavily involved with the building with building bridges to Muslim communities and the Middle East Peace Camp, which is allied with Kadima. The camp brings together children from Jewish, Muslim, Arab, Israeli, and Christian backgrounds every summer with the intention of building relationships and understandings. We know that when Islamophobia and anti-Semitism hit, we have each other's back, Silberstein said. The collective has held one event, a virtual cooking demo with a Palestinian chef. Baking date cookies is pretty low stakes, but what if conflict does arise in the future among the partners? If any relation, in any relationship there's going to be conflict, it's how you manage it, Rosenblum said. We wrestle with that stuff. We are wrestlers with God. We work with people through this conflict. When you look at all the conflict going on, not just in Seattle but throughout the world, the most important thing we can do for the younger generation is model how we should behave toward each other. But first things first, and that's the roof. A first step is to get the rain to stop coming in. For Kabani, Cherry Street Village is a continuation of the legacy of El Moslemani. She passed away, but her spirit lives on, she said. Cherry Street Village intends to continue the joy and diverse faiths under one roof. Next from JTA, Jewish Biden backers and lawmakers make a push for Robert Wexler to be the ambassador to Israel. Washington. At least three top Jewish Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives have made representations to the White House to name Robert Wexler, a former Florida congressman, to be the U.S. ambassador to Israel. The push, which has been joined by figures who led Joe Biden's presidential election campaign in the Jewish community, intensified this week when it appeared that Biden had settled on Tom Nidus, a former deputy secretary of state who is Jewish but whose Israel record is a relative blank slate. Underpinning the pressure to name Wexler is the hope among traditionally pro-Israel Democrats that Biden maintains a close relationship with Israel and names an ambassador who understands the sensitivities of the country and of the American Jewish community. Also a factor is Wexler's familiarity with Arab players in the region, including the Palestinians. The three Jewish Democrats who have been pressing the issue, the JTA has learned, are Ted Deutsch and Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida and Jerry Nadler of New York. 
Deutsch, who chairs the House Middle East Subcommittee, replaced Wexler when Wexler quit Congress in 2010. Wasserman Schultz is a former chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee. Nadler chairs the House, House Judiciary Committee. Spokesmen for the three did not respond to queries by press time. Wexler has long-standing and deep ties to Israel and the pro-Israel community. He was the first Jewish member of Congress to back then-Senator Barack Obama's presidential bid in 2007. He left Congress in 2010 to lead the Center for Middle East Peace, a group that works behind the scenes to advance the two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and that it is funded by Daniel Abraham, the slimfast mogul. Since then, Wexler has traveled frequently to Israel. He briefly was a lobbyist in the late 2010s, Wexler heads the Tel Aviv office of a major American lobbying outfit, Ballard Partners, but has not been a registered lobbyist for more than two years, complying uh, complying with government ethics rules. Our team is uniquely qualified to assist clients with government relations in Israel, as well as assisting Israeli companies in the United States, the shop says about its Tel Aviv office. Wexler's familiarity with the Jewish community and with Israeli issues makes him attractive to his backers. Deutsch went on the record Wednesday with his support in a story on Wexler and Haaretz. He knows the issues, he knows the players, he's well-respected across the political spectrum, and he understands the many challenges that come with that position, Deutsch told the newspaper. Deutsch did not mention Nidus, but the contrast he drew was obvious. Wexler knows the terrain better than a newcomer. Robert's experience will clearly help him meet that test, he told Haaretz, referring to knowing the U.S.-Israel relationship. Michael Adler, a Florida-based donor who has backed Biden presidential campaigns going back to the 1988 race, is, according to sources, leading the push for Wexler. Adler reportedly had angled for the ambassador job himself, but is now all in for the former congressman. Adler did not reply to a request for comment. Hadar Suskin, the CEO of Americans for Peace Now, said he was hearing broad support for Wexler and the pro-Israel community, encompassing backers of liberal groups like his, but also backers of AIPAC, the powerhouse lobby. The momentum is impressive, he said. In 48 hours, I've heard from many members of Congress and Jewish community leaders, and they are a politically diverse group. APN supporters APAC people, federation leaders, Jewish members of Congress, non-Jews, progressives, and centrists. There is a lot of support for Robert out there. The announcement is expected to be made by the end of May. And now we'll go over to the Times of Israel. Two centuries on, Napoleon's bloody campaign still contentious in Gaza. Bonaparte brought with him soldiers, uh, rather scholars and engineers, who transformed Palestine, but his conquest of the region left thousands dead by AFP and Times of Israel staff. Napoleon Bonaparte's bloody campaign in Egypt and Ottoman Palestine, which marked the start of modern European colonialism in the Middle East, remains contentious two centuries after the French emperor's death. The Corsican general set sail eastward with 300 ships in 1798, aiming to conquer Egypt and block a crucial route between Britain and its colonial territories in India. It was an occupation that was to leave thousands dead in Egypt and Palestine. But Bonaparte also brought some 160 scholars and engineers 
who produced mountains of research that would play a key role in transforming Egypt into a modern state. For Egyptian writer Mohammed Salmawi, speaking ahead of the May 5th bicentenary of Napoleon's death, the venture was a mix of fire and light. It was a military campaign for sure, and Egyptians put up resistance to French forces, but it was also the start of an era of intellectual progress, he said. The Description de l'Egypte resulting from the mission was an encyclopedic account of Egypt's society, history, fauna, and flora. French troops' discovery of the Rosetta Stone also allowed hieroglyphs to be deciphered for the first time, opening up the field of Egyptology. Whirler Muhammad Ali drew heavily on Napoleonic research as he built the modern Egyptian state, says French-Egyptian writer Robert Soule. But Arab nationalist Gamal Abdel Nasser, who helped topple Muhammad Ali's dynasty in 1952, used the episode to promote anti-colonial national identity. For historian Al-Hussein Hassan Hamad at Cairo's Al-Azhar University, Napoleon's scientists were like his troops on an imperial mission to serve the French presence in Egypt and exploit its wealth. When Bonaparte's fleet anchored in 1798 close to Alexandria, he ordered soldiers to dab walls with the message, Egyptians, you will be told that I am coming to destroy your religion. It is a lie. Do not believe it. But his claims of religious tolerance soon gave way to repression after he toppled the centuries-old Mamluk dynasty in July 1798. When Egyptians revolted against their occupiers that October, French troops brutally crushed the uprising. They killed thousands and even bombed the Al-Ashar Mosque, a key authority for Sunni Muslims worldwide. Many Egyptians today see the episode as the first imperialist aggression of the modern age against the Muslim Orient, Seoul said. That sentiment is echoed in the neighboring Gaza Strip. Napoleon seized the ancient port city of Gaza from Ottoman Empire forces with little resistance in February 1799, having marched through the Sinai Desert after British Admiral Horatio Nelson destroyed his fleet. He is a small man who has caused great chaos in this region, said Ghassan Wisha, head of history at the Islamic University of Gaza. Napoleon came here not only with soldiers, but also with scientists and agricultural specialists. But he used science to justify the occupation. He lied. Rashad al-Madani, a retired Gaza history lecturer, said the city has been a center for honey, oil, and agriculture, and a strategic point between Asia and Europe. Napoleon wrote that Gaza's hills covered with forests of olive trees reminded him of Languedoc in southern France. Two centuries on, those groves have given way to a forest of concrete. Gaza is home to two million Palestinians, many of them refugees and their descendants, ruled by the Islamist terror group Hamas and living in an, under an Egyptian and Israeli blockade which Israel says it maintains to prevent the entry of weaponry. Madani would remind his students of Napoleon's massacre of some 3,000 people in the port town of Jaffa, now in modern Israel, further up the coast. The French occupation was worse than that of Israel, he said. Small reminders of Napoleon remain in Gaza. The Qasr al-Basha, the Pasha's palace, where the emperor-to-be reportedly stayed, still stands. 
It is a modest sandstone edifice surrounded by scruffy concrete buildings and electric wires. The palace, first built in the 13th century, had long borne Napoleon's name, but tellingly after Hamas seized power in Gaza in 2007, from the rival Palestinian Authority it changed the name. The palace has become a museum, and the first-floor bedroom where the general stayed, unfurnished today, is filled with Byzantine artifacts. The population of Gaza today has a dark, a negative image of all military campaigns, including that of Napoleon, said Wisha. It was in Akko, a sleepy port town further north in Israel, that Palestinians found a local hero in the struggle against Napoleon. Ahmad al-Jassar, a Poznian whose military career saw him act as an enforcer for regional rulers before eventually being installed as an Ottoman garrison commander at Akko, is still admired by many for holding out for two months against a crushing French siege. In our history books, Ahmad al-Jassar is seen as a strong character, a hero, but Jazar, Arab for, Arabic for butcher, was also a cruel being and aggressor, he said. Many students didn't like it when I told them that. And the Arab leader's French rival sparks similar strong reactions. Marianne Khoury, the executive producer of Egyptian Yosef Chahine's film Adieu Bonaparte, said Napoleon's campaign was still excessively controversial. For many in France, the 1985 film was unacceptable, she said. How could Shaheen, as an Arab director, dare to talk about Bonaparte? Some Egyptians, for their part, recognized the scientific progress the French invasion brought. But at the same time, there is the colonial aspect which is still sensitive and many Egyptians don't accept it, she said. And next from the Jewish News in England. 7,000 Jewish victims of prison ships sunk by RAF remembered for first time. By Francine Wolfes. More than 7,000 concentration camp survivors killed after the Royal Air Force erroneously bombed German prison ships carrying them in the Baltic Sea were remembered with special prayers for the first time in 76 years since the tragedy happened. Described as the worst friendly fire incident in history, SS Cap Arcona, along with Theobeck and Deutschland, came under attack and were ultimately sunk by RAF pilots on May 3, 1945, in the Bay of Lubeck, following intelligence that SS officers and senior Nazis were attempting to escape to Norway. The ships were, however, also heavily laden with Jewish camp survivors and prisoners of war from several allied nations who had been transported from Neuengamme concentration camp near Hamburg. Of the 5,000 inmates aboard Cap Arcona, only 350 survived, while of the 2,800 prisoners on the Thielbeck, only 50 were saved. All 2,000 prisoners on the Deutschland, however, were safely taken off before it capsized. Bodies washed up on the shore for months afterwards and were buried in mass graves. It was only in 1971 that the remains of the last victim were discovered. On Monday, for the first time since the incident, which happened three days after Hitler's suicide, all RAF chaplains paused at 3 p.m., to say the Coventry Prayer Litany in remembrance of those who died. 
Speaking to Jewish News, an RAF spokesman said, Any civilian casualty is a tragedy, and we seek to honor all those who lost their lives at Lubeck. First built in 1926, the Cap Arcona began its maritime career as a very different type of ship, as a German luxury liner ferrying holidaymakers to South America in style. Until 1939, the boat completed 91 transatlantic trips, once even escorting Clark Gable in one of its first uh, opulent first-class cabins. But with the outbreak of the Second World War, the ship was conscripted by the Nazis, and the Cap Arcona served as a floating barracks off the Baltic port of Gdynia. The ship was even used by Joseph Goebbels in one of his legendary propaganda films as a stand-in for the Titanic in which the British crew were depicted as greedy capitalist fools. In May 1945, just one day before Germany's surrender, a Swedish diplomat arranged with Heinrich Himmler to transport Scandinavian inmates from Neuengamme to freedom in Sweden. After that, he planned to negotiate the release of additional inmates, including Jews. When the prisoners were crammed into the ship, which was now in fetid condition, they clung onto the hope that they might eventually see freedom, but fate would determine otherwise. Tragically, when the British arrived just a day later to liberate Nuingama, they were disheartened to learn they were too late. The inmates had either been killed or transferred elsewhere, seeing a barren and clean site. The soldiers simply reported the concentration camp as empty. And next, some JTA updates. One of three 19-year-old yeshiva students shot in a drive-by shooting this week in the West Bank has died of his wounds. The Israeli army, meantime, apprehended a suspect in the shooting. Yehuda Guetta died Wednesday and was buried Thursday. Assailants had opened fire on the students who were waiting Sunday, last Sunday, at a bus stop at the Tapuach Junction in the northern West Bank. They all attended a yeshiva in Itamar near the junction. The wounded students are Benaya Peretz and Amachai Hala. The suspect, Muntasir Shalabi, was apprehended Wednesday. Shalabi, who was in his 40s, had recently returned from the United States, Haaretz reported, quoting residents of Tormus Aya, a village in the northern West Bank. He had gambling debts, they said. No organization has claimed responsibility for the attack, although Hamas and Islamic Jihad have praised it. Separately, Israeli troops shot dead a Palestinian 16-year-old during clashes in the northern West Bank. The army said troops fired on suspects who were throwing firebombs and that it was investigating the incident. Palestinian health authorities said Saeed Musuf Mohammed Uda was shot in the back in the village of Odla, Haaretz reported. A dramatic rise on, uh, in attacks on Asian Americans has led to an overall increase in hate crimes in New York City since 2021, while the number of crimes targeting Jews decreased slightly. Jews in New York were targeted in 54 hate crimes reported between January 1st and May 2nd, down from 58 such crimes in the same period in 2020, according to New York Police Department figures released Monday. The New York Police Department's Hate Crime Task Force said the city recorded 180 hate crimes through May 2nd, compared to 104 such crimes during the same period last year, a 73% increase. 
Asians were the most targeted group with 80 hate crimes through May 2nd, soaring from 16 in the same period in 2020. Jews were the next most targeted. Decrying social justice ideology, 49 people signed Jewish Harper's Letter. In an open letter signed by about 50 prominent Jewish Americans, uh, warning of the rise of social justice ideology, which is described as a pernicious force that is antithetical to Judaism and threatens to stifle free debate and democratic values in the United States. The group that organized the letter and many of its signatories say they were inspired by last year's Harper's Letter, which made a similar argument about censorship of unpopular opinions in the public sphere. Signatories of the so-called Jewish Harper's Letter include prominent conservative writers Brett Stevens, Barry Rice, and Seth Mandel, major academics and authors such as Steven Pinker and Daniel Gordas, as well as leading rabbis like David Wolpe of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. They were brought together by a new initiative called the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The letter calls on Jews to take action against the suppression of dissent, that is said to be dominating the United States. Jewish tradition cherishes debate, respects disagreement, and values questions as well as answers, the letter says. We members of the Jewish community add our voices to the growing chorus supporting our liberal principles, opposing the imposition of ideology, encouraging open discussions of challenging topics, and committing to achieving a more just America. Jared Kushner has launched an institute to promote his major accomplishment when he advised his father-in-law, former President Donald Trump, the normalization agreements between Israel and a number of Sunni Arab countries. Kushner founded the Abraham Accords Institute for Peace with Avi Berkowitz, a friend who Kushner brought in to be the chief Middle East peace negotiator in the latter part of his father-in-law's single presidential term, Axios reported on Wednesday. Berkowitz helped, uh, Berkowitz helped broker the accords last year that brought normalization agreements between Israel and Sudan, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. The Institute will promote trade, tourism, and people-to-people -people exchanges between Israel and the Arab countries. The other founders include Chaim Sabin, an Israeli-American entertainment mogul who is also a major donor to the Democratic Party. Axios said that Kushner wants to bring more Democrats on board. The Abraham Accords is one of the few diplomatic initiatives launched by Trump that President Joe Biden has fully embraced. Kushner has laid low since his father-in-law left office and has not pronounced on the false claims Trump peddles that Joe Biden's election was fraudulent. Kushner, who led Trump's 2016 and 2020 campaigns, is reportedly no longer among his father-in-law's political advisors. The other founders of the Institute include Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi and the ambassadors of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates to Washington, Ron Greenway, the senior Middle East official on Trump's National Security Council, will be the executive director. German Jewish leaders call 15% rise in politically motivated anti-Semitic crimes absolutely alarming by Toby Axelrod, Berlin. The number of politically motivated crimes rose sharply in Germany last year, including a 15% rise in anti-Semitic offenses. The total documented by the country's federal police force is the highest since contemporary record-keeping began in 2001. 
German officials said the new efforts are underway to help police officers identify anti-Semitic crime. The annual report by the Federal Criminal Police Office released Tuesday showed an 8.54% increase in political crimes over 2019 to 44,692 crimes, German Interior Minister Horst Seehofer said. Within that total, the number of anti-Semitic crimes reported to police across the country rose to 2,351 from 2,032. The vast majority, 85%, fell into the categories of incitement to hate, insults and propaganda, including Holocaust denial and glorification of Nazi ideology. 55% were violent crimes. The president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, uh, the president, Joseph Schuster, called the news absolutely alarming and evidence of Germany's failure to deal with the problem. According to the German media, Schuster said that anti-Jewish harassment is found everywhere, on the street, and on the Internet. Several anti-Semitism watchdogs noted that many cases are not reported to police. A large dark field study by the Criminal Investigation Unit of the state of Lower Saxony in the former West Germany in 2017 showed that only 12% of hate crimes are reported overall. Alexander Rasumi, a spokesperson for the Berlin-based Federal Association of Departments for Research and Information on Antisemitism, or RIAS, which monitors and analyzes antisemitism, told JTA. Rasumi said the state's criminal investigations department is preparing a follow-up study. Statistics on politically motivated crimes were first singled out starting in 2001. Violent crimes with a political motivation jumped by 18.82% over the previous year. There were 11 murders in this category, 9 in a right-wing extremist attack in February 2020 on a shisha bar in the city of Hanau. Right-wing extremism remains Germany's largest domestic security threat, Seehofer said. The report found that 23,604 crimes were linked to right-wing perpetrators, an increase of 5.6%, while crimes linked to left-wing political ideologies rose 11.4% to 10,971. Meanwhile, a groundbreaking effort has been launched to help sensitize police to anti-Semitic crimes in the former East German state of Saxony. The state attorney general and state police, working with local Jewish communities, have prepared a new action guide to help police recognize anti-Semitic motivations and take them into consideration in a trial. We're always hearing complaints that when it comes to crimes with an anti-Semitic background, this aspect is either not recognized or not given enough weight, Dresden's attorney general Hans Strobel said at an online news conference Wednesday, announcing the new guidelines. We want the police officers who are first on the scene to know what indicators matter in a possible anti-Semitic crime. Schuster called the new guidelines unparalleled in Germany and at the news conference urged all of Germany's states to adopt them. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.